0: Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network.
1: So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast. On the Compliance Podcast Network, your co-hosts are Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley I'm Mary Shirley, and today I'm very pleased to highlight the work and knowledge of Penny Milner Smythe, a director at Ethical Ways, as she really is at the forefront of one of the hottest topics in compliance of late, and that is of the implications for our profession of neuroscience, behavioral science, and cognitive science. First, Penny, will you start off by sharing more about your background?
0: I know that regular listeners of the podcast will have been struck by the diversity of career paths that have led your previous guests Mm -hmm. to the Mm -hmm. compliance profession. And I know from past podcasts that there have been more than a few accidental arrivals at the destination Mm -hmm. of (laughs) compliance. Right. It's also also human. We want to kind of look back and find a logic to the route we've taken. Um, Mm -hmm. So if I were to find a logic in my route, um, it would start with, The fact that my original studies and intended career direction um, was in the field of neuropsychology. Mm -hmm. I did a master's degree in research psychology focusing on the role of brain and behavior. There were very few permanent academic positions available in my hometown, which is Durban in South Africa. Um, And I had a relief lecturing position teaching neuropsychology and cognitive psychology Thereafter, I took up a position in the human resource management field, which was readily available. So I then shifted my focus to organizational behavior, organizational psychology. And this is a very rewarding role because if you can influence the culture and practices in an organization, Mm -hmm. you can have a profoundly positive psychological impact on Mm -hmm. the experience of the humans working within them. That translated into a career of about 30 years um, as head of human resources on an in-house basis in a very diverse organization with um, all levels and different types of professionals. Um, And the first thing I discovered um, to my horror was how much time one had to spend dealing with employee misconduct.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: What what Mm -hmm. a draining and emotionally... um, taxing part of the Mm -hmm. job of being in human resources uh, that is. So it struck me very early that there was this huge opportunity in every organization to simply reduce the time you spend dealing with misconduct. Right. uh, Focus more time on articulating the need for and equipping people to act. It was probably in about 2000 that I first introduced workplace ethics training Mm -hmm. um, and ethics policies into the organization I had an in-house role in and over the next 15 years or so I had the opportunity of through that ethics program influencing the way that people were managed and decisions were made all with the objective of creating an environment in which the people were more likely to be their best self rather than their worst self mm-hmm. which is the theme I might come back to. Great. Um, later this belief in the importance for the organization and society as a whole of the governance, risk, ethics, compliance cluster of functions led me to feel drawn to focus my attention on those areas, which I do through my work today as Director at Ethical Ways. Um, We're serving um, the Southern African uh, region in general with uh, clients um, in the UK as well. And so my work today focuses on two related areas. The one is advisory and training services, promoting ethical conduct and ethical decision-making at all levels of an organization. So, I might be conducting board ethics training tomorrow and then work with entry-level employees or new graduates the next day. Um, We might work with cross-functional teams on ethics, the constellations of employees that we do ethics training with um, is is endless. My second focus and my special focus area really is promoting anti-corruption compliance. I'm the author of the International Compliance Association Specialist Certificate in in Anti-Corruption. So I have to keep up to date daily with all the major corruption cases Mm -hmm. and um, associated regulatory developments around Mm -hmm. the world. What I could say that's common throughout my career has actually been applying insights from cognitive and neuroscience and behavioral
1: science Mm -hmm. to the creation of ethical work environments a wonderful, a fascinating um, area. I think I've said it before on the podcast. I love the part that psychology plays in um, developing compliance programs. And will you tell us a little bit more about what part you believe science plays in compliance? I think that the objectives that compliance
0: and compliance related functions need to deliver in an organization are simply too important, to be built upon anything other than the best available evidence. If we take a step back, our shared purpose in ethics and compliance is to affect a positive influence on the actions of people who we want to conduct themselves according to certain requirements. And while each of us come into compliance with usually a strong qualification from one profession, often legal. The compliance role really requires a multidisciplinary perspective mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if we are going to be truly effective. and um, Too often our programs fail because of unintended adverse consequences where our plans weren't based on evidence. They might have been complying with everything if we put mm-hmm. our le- Attorney or lawyer hats on, but mm-hmm. not consistent with best practices from a field such as behavioral economics or science. Mm-hmm. So, oh, if I could just give a simple example, one of the ones that's mm, um, please uh, a bear is when <laughs> there's a top level decision uh, made um, very quickly and without little thought in a boardroom that there's mm-hmm. a need to incentivize compliance or buy mm-hmm. compliance, as I yep. prefer to put it. The compli- <laughs> The compliance professional in the room, if they're not equipped to understand how harmful an amateur approach um, can be to their objectives, isn't armed with the arguments they need to um, put forward alternatives. They're not armed with the insights that they need to explain why this would be a mistake and would actually lead to potentially the opposite behaviour than that is which is required. I just feel that the work of compliance is too important for us to spend time reinventing wheels that already exist that can give our programs quick traction. The study of neuroscience really helps us to understand how people make decisions, how they Mm -hmm. analyze the world around them, the Mm -hmm. impact of emotion and competing priorities on Mm -hmm. our ability to make decisions in the moment Mm -hmm. um, and make decisions that take our best judgment into consideration. So from my perspective, without those insights, obviously very high-level insights, it's not easy for us to develop the kind of compliance implementation plans that are going to
1: have the best chances of success. So, that would just be an example. Perfect. Thank you. And um, as I'm sure you're aware, in, in compliance, and this is probably true for HR as well, particularly when it comes to investigations, we often have to deal with what could be described as bad actors. So, I wanted to get your view. Are people either good or bad? The answer to this question is so critical for the compliance profession. And
0: mm-hmm. the answer, fortunately, is very clear. Very few people are all good or all bad. Mm-hmm. And if there's been any form of considered recruitment process that brought people into the organization you're working in, the chances are that the significant majority of employees consider themselves to be and aim to be good people. Mm-hmm. So what I like to say is that there's a much more important question that must preoccupy the compliance professional. And that question is, why do good people do bad things at work? Um, And I know it's starting to preoccupy the profession. Um, We had compliance officers from over 90 countries participating in a webinar on that topic that I presented for the International Compliance Association recently. And so I'm very excited that these are questions that are being asked um, mm. by people in compliance from every aspect of compliance, whether one's in an anti-corruption or money laundering or generic regulatory compliance or whatever the case is.
1: I found that in investigations, um, people often don't ever see themselves as the bad guy. They know that what they're doing is is wrong in some way and therefore it's covert and secretive they're not shouting from the rooftops that mm. they've been engaging in improper conduct mm. but there's usually some kind of justification behind um rightly or wrongly behind what they're doing um and they're motivated by that and not feeling in any way like they're the the bad guy in the scenario
0: Yes, I think that that's right. Obviously, there are many people who are hugely regretful and remorseful, and on reflection, um, don't recognize themselves in the misconduct.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and it's only later on reflection that they realize that there were a set of circumstances that at the time helped them to justify their actions, mm-hmm. but which in retrospect they know very well um, were um, not defensible. Uh, rationale.
1: And so what factors influence whether someone will participate in improper conduct in a workplace? Are there commonalities? Well it
0: is a common belief that people arrive in the workplace either with ethical values or without and if they don't have them there's nothing you can do about them mm-hmm. and I find there's such an unhelpful distracting and just wrong foundation on, mm-hmm. one, on, on which to build an ethics and compliance program. Mm -hmm. Because with the exception of those few individuals at the end of the spectrum, most of us are significantly influenced by the environment we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. So if the organization doesn't have a conscious and active ethics awareness program, we have to accept that social norms, the influences of a supervisor and social environment in general and pressures on the employee themselves will see them engaging in conduct that runs counter to our compliance objectives.
1: Is there anything else that you wanted to, to mention on that one um, in, in relation to some of the um, high-level pointers that you mentioned before about conflicting um, priorities and environments? One of the things that we do know is that
0: um, lying um, almost becomes a highly-tuned um, skill Mm -hmm. when people have been in the workplace for a period of time. We might start out as children learning very quickly that the way to be in our parents or our caregivers' good books is to tell them what they want to hear. But in the workplace, it's enforced time and again that the the best results um, or the most comfortable existence is when you tell superiors what they want to hear. Mm -hmm. We also have supervisors and managers inadvertently modelling dishonesty. Um, It could be a small way when the customer phones and says, I'm waiting for the order and the supervisor says to the staff member, I'll tell them that the truck has broken down. Now I'm giving Mm a very... maybe simple example, Mm -hmm. but what I always say to leaders and um, leadership of ethics training is that you can't ask people to lie for you Mm -hmm. and then be surprised when they lie to you. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And essentially the, the, the leadership of an organization is in an authoritarian, influential position over people. And if people discern any level of dishonesty, or lack of authenticity in the way the organisation even conducts itself in relation to the public, Mm -hmm. they tend to follow suit. Um, So the challenge is for us to create an environment in which we are not inadvertently modelling inappropriate (laughs) conduct.
1: Right. Okay. That's an important one because I think um, lying certainly comes up more often than I would wish for in... um, in investigations, and so um, the more truth that we see in an office, I think the easier for us to get to the end of an investigation as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's having been in HR for so long, the one thing I used to say so often to people who were facing uh, investigations is, um, when you find yourself in a ditch, stop digging. Um, mm-hmm. And the reason being that I saw so many people who had worse consequences for some kind of misconduct arising from how they handled themselves during the investigation than related to the original event. Because mm. if you are dishonest during the investigation, that obviously results in a complete loss of trust. Anyway, mm-hmm. we're diverting.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so knowing what we do about organizational psychology and neuroscience, how can compliance officers best reduce improper conduct? High level, because it's probably
0: um, a great topic for a a two-day compliance officer workshop. Um, (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) I think think the, the, the overriding message is that we need to make expectations clear and we need to communicate these expectations continually and consistently Mm -hmm. Um, so the assumption that people know what is required of them because at the time of their take on or their induction they signed a series of policies um, really is unrealistic
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: We need to be communicating expectations very clearly in a way that each employee will understand that is meaningful to them at every level of the organization and then be breathing life into those messages in our organizational messaging continuously. Perhaps maybe what I would say from a cognitive neuroscience perspective, for Mm -hmm. example, that would say to us, we're living in a world where attention is easily drawn by other stimuli. We are living in an age of distraction. Um, look at the formats and accessibilities of your policies and procedures. Mm. Is the policy readily available at the moment of moral hazard, for example? Mm -hmm. Is the policy formatted in a way that grabs and keeps attention? Um, Have you communicated the logic of the key principles in the policy? So now we're seeing more of these multimedia-based policy documents Um, distilling key messages into um, punchy um, quotes and sayings, linking through to videos, messages from the CEO, for example, but also the whole idea of making information available to people when they need it. Mm -hmm. So working with one procurement um, team, for example, on the subject of how to apply ethical nudges Mm -hmm. into the design of the work one of the things they introduced was at the point of authorising a purchase by the supervisor, there was a little red flag and a link mm-hmm. to the con- conflict of interest policy. Perfect. So, because someone's about to make a decision, they're taking the cost, uh, many other factors into consideration. They're not thinking about the conflict of interest policy. Mm-hmm. Make it available at that very point. So that would be some practical application of some of the thinking from 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 neuroscience. On the behavioral science side, and this is where I think things are exceptionally exciting, Mm -hmm. we can come to one very simple message. And that is our role is to make it easy for people to do the right thing and hard for them to do the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Too often doing the right thing is hard. And doing the wrong thing is easy. Mm -hmm. And the the solutions are different for every different organisation. But just a um, simple exercise of taking, for example, I was working with an institution that had um, timesheets for um, part-time staff and there was a culture of trust and um, not wanting to challenge um, what the professionals had declared as their hours. And we literally sat and redesigned the form, made it easier for um, people to fill it in and introduce the concept of a pre-commitment to mm-hmm. honesty as opposed to at the end of the form saying, I declare that everything I've said is true. So when we, people say, um, we ask people to say, um, do you declare that everything you are about to write is honest? We right.
1: mm-hmm. you know that it's much more likely that they will be honest. Mm, that's a wonderful example. Thank you. Those are great ones, and thank you for for drawing distinct the, the distinctions between um, e- each of your examples as well. If I could just add to your first ones, you know, when you were mentioning about the acknowledgement of a policy um, and expecting people to, to to basically abide by everything just yes. from that, that's I think a classic example of a check the box compliance program. Um, and one of the things that I like to um, promote to help with that is to continue on the discussion about the the content of the policy. So, for example, you, as a compliance officer, might like to hold a lunch and learn day about conflicts of, of interest, for example. So, they've seen the policy and you hold a session where maybe it's some scenarios that uh, you go through and, and have people apply um, Real-life examples and and see if they can work out what to do, or perhaps even do a role play um, of someone who's been offered some kind of side gig job, um, and now what is the process that they ought to go through with their manager in the room? What might it look like to declare the the conflict, for example? So and um, yeah, please building please on do. that
0: example. Yes, um, many of your um, listeners will be in a situation as I was. In, in an in-house HR situation, which is where you have people on remote sites, mm-hmm. often with a fairly low level of supervision, mm-hmm. people that don't have ready access to the head office or whatever the case is. And so to build on what you're proposing, the use of um, video learning and micro learning um, and reaching people with these same messages and having that readily available to them in remote areas is important. And obviously, you know, repackaging the message for the recipient. Um, you know, I mean, just thinking about the point at which a person signs acceptance of policies. I work in an environment where there's high levels of unemployment, which presents particular compliance challenges Um and results in some very good creative solutions. Mm-hmm. But when a person is going to be the first person in a family of 10 to be employed, which is going to be life-changing for that person, they mm. will sign anything. Mm-hmm. And so it's mm-hmm. a real obligation we have, especially in these high unemployment environments, to be very sure that we are making it easy for people to understand what's required and, and making it hard for them to do the wrong thing. Um, I think one of the other things from the science side of things is that social anthropology, um, some brilliant research that's come out recently, that's very, very strong research, is showing that there are so many commonalities across cultures. And so with confidence, compliance officers can understand many of the commonalities and design their programs based on those And um, so maybe that's a a subject for another day. I think we're very preoccupied with differences across cultures and across Mm -hmm. levels. And Mm -hmm. we fail to get some of the basics right. And the basics Mm -hmm. include that we all need to know that we mustn't, for example, practice favoritism. And from a moral psychology point of view, what we know is that nearly every society teaches its children to look after their own, to favor Mm -hmm. their to favour their kin, mm-hmm. um, to defer to authority. So all of these um, so-called moral messages that people come into the workplace with are not necessarily messages that are helpful and supportive of the kind of ethical
1: conduct we're looking for. Exactly, and sometimes they can be our downfall. So we know that um, when it comes to phishing, Scams. Um, the more authoritative the um, scam, or the phishing email looks, the more likely people are to, to click on it. If it looks like you've um, committed a traffic infraction, for example, um, absolutely, and will jump in. Mm-hmm. So again, we
0: said, yeah, mm-hmm. we said to people, you have to follow instructions and you have mm-hmm. to obey um, your superior. But at the same time, what we're needing them to do is to be healthily skeptical. <laughs>
1: Right. (laughs) Right. Uh, Awesome. So you gave some great examples of what um, us as compliance officers um, can directly manage. What about when it comes to us influencing the business functions? How can we encourage our colleagues in the business um, with some ideas as to what to do in order to reduce improper conduct from there, not just out of the compliance function?
0: start with, we really need to focus on creating um, ethics and compliance and leading for ethics and compliance as a core generic leadership and supervisory uh, development um, need and responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, what we need is the leaders and supervisors to really understand their role in creating the conditions under which ethical action and decision-making is going to be more likely. Mm-hmm. And um, so consistently communicating the importance of integrity in the workplace um, is so important by this group of people, especially at the supervisory level, where what we're discovering is that really it's the immediate supervisor who or the local supervisor who has the most profound effect of either deterring, speaking mm-hmm. up, of promoting um, and allowing misconduct um, and that's a very important area we need to look at we need to also focus on encouraging people to act against what you might call micro contraventions what's so hard for employees to know is where's is the line between unethical conduct that you overlook mm-hmm. today and mm-hmm. the action that you're going to take tomorrow in response mm-hmm. to what them might seem to be particularly worse behavior One of the things that I found very helpful in engaging leaders and supervisors is for them to realize that the very conditions that foster employee engagement and commitment, which is what they want. They want engaged employees. Mm -hmm. Those conditions are the very same conditions that increase the likelihood of ethical conduct. So for Mm -hmm. me, this is very exciting. When people in a workplace are acting ethically, they are generally highly engaged and vice Mm -hmm. versa. In fact, I do a talk on the neuroscience of ethics and I do a talk on the neuroscience of engagement. And to be honest, the content is the same.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So that's great, right? So that's um, a a factor that we can use as compliance officers um, because we've got a common aim with our our business partners that they want to see engaged employees so that they're uh, the best of uh, what the, the core business does. And we want to see engaged employees because there is a positive correlation between a highly ethical workplace and engaged uh, staff.
0: Absolutely. And what I explained to leaders is that it is not possible for um, people to be thinking in the best interests of the organisation if because they are so disillusioned, they've Mm -hmm. had to give up on caring for the best interests of the organization. Mm -hmm. And so it is their job to create that engagement. And in turn, um, the likelihood of ethical conduct will follow. But without the engagement, there's a very low likelihood of people saying, right, I'm now going to go out on a limb, I'm going to risk the censure of my colleagues and I'm going to speak up about this important issue if Mm. they're not feeling that the organisation is one that they committed to.
1: In order to have a speak up and generally healthy culture and workplaces, there needs to be psychological safety, in my opinion. In fact, Google identified psychological safety as the number one key factor in successful teams. And Penny, I know that you uh, authored a very popular paper um, which has been um, downloaded by many, um, particularly on the topic of speaking up. And I'll ask you to make that available in our LinkedIn group um, so that uh, our our listeners have access to it, if you wouldn't mind. Would you? With pleasure. Thank you. Would you um, share with us what? Um, you recommend is needed to create an environment of psychological safety and what key actions compliance officers can take to foster this in respect of encouraging speaking up to the hotline?
0: I'll start generically, and that is that um, when... We talk about psychological safety from a neuroscience perspective. We are very clear now what Mm -hmm. the conditions are that the brain needs to be experiencing for the human to experience psychological safety. So this is very interesting. Absolutely, psychological safety is the goal that all of us should be working at from every discipline and creating that experience in the workplace. Um, There's an excellent book by um, David Rock called your brain at work which i would recommend to everybody listening Mm -hmm. to the podcast Mm -hmm. um because what he does is take neuroscience and make the principles totally applicable to us in our personal lives great but what what we need to know is that the conditions that promote a calm and rational state for thinking um, are what we need to be creating in the workplace and these are the same that would also help us have a speak up culture Mm so um credible research, the latest technologies are showing us through studying people's brains while they are being exposed to different circumstances and doing different tasks, that the part of our brain responsible for good judgment must not be in a state of being overwhelmed or disrupted by strong emotion. Mm. So when people don't feel psychologically safe, it's not possible for them to be making the best possible decision. So that we know for sure. And that emotions, notably fear, are raised and compromise our judgment under certain Mm -hmm. circumstances. And we know what these circumstances are. They are ambiguity. People need as much certainty as possible in the workplace. When it comes to ethics, we find the more clear the rules are and the more understood they are, the better as soon as there's any ambiguity people are going to be making decisions that aren't as good as they would be otherwise we definitely need people to experience dignity in the workplace and much less disrespect mm-hmm. because the experience of disrespect as well as the experience of unfairness are two human experiences that so arouse emotion in the brain that they sometimes make logical thinking nigh impossible. Mm -hmm. So favoritism is something that people raise all the time when we run ethics training courses as being Mm -hmm. um, a cause of perceived unfairness. Mm -hmm. And these are all factors that cause disengagement. Mm. micromanagement needs to be replaced with giving people appropriate autonomy Mm -hmm. and most of all we need to be giving people a sense of belonging and not of isolation and those are some of the conditions that the brain actually requires in order for us to be able to think as clearly as possible they're the conditions that create psychological safety and certainly the conditions that are quite helpful if we're wanting to encourage people
1: to speak freely Mm -hmm. Perfect, and I just realised that I didn't define psychological safety for those new to the term. So, sorry, folks, a little bit late to the game, Um, but here it is. Um, This is uh, uh, a little definition. Um, Can we take risks on this team without feeling insecure or embarrassed? So the idea that if you are confused about uh, something that is happening, that you confidently can ask that question without feeling like a dum-dum in front of your colleagues and it's not to be confused with being nice it's just to do with whether the environment is one which people can be free and frank and know that they won't suffer repercussions or other negative effects from any kind of honest talk perfect so thank you so okay. much for that penny that was that was really useful and there's so many things that you've mentioned today that we could probably do an entire episode on. So if anyone's sitting there thinking, oh, why isn't Mary drilling down more or asking more on these topics? Um, I would love to, but I think um, we would get... Time is against us. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But um, you know what? We have many more days um, of the year to go and and, and many more ways to to share knowledge. And, um, Penny, I'm sure that you will be happy to make yourself available um, oh. To listeners, as many of our great warning compliance have done. Absolutely. After their talks. Perfect. Please <laughs> connect with me on LinkedIn. Wonderful. Well, we do, however, have time for one more question. And so I wanted to do, um, to, to, to give you an opportunity to, well, it's really an opportunity for us actually as compliance officers um, in the idea of quick wins. So, Penny, if you had the ability to shape behavior in the company, if everyone listening to this podcast episode right now, what is the single most impactful and doable action item our listeners could take to make their office a better place? I think of the many suggestions I could make. Mm -hmm. um, It would only be right
0: that when we want to bring about change for others, we start with ourselves.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So um, what I think the organisations we work in and the world that we live in needs from us as compliance people is to expand the definition of our role. So the action would be to adopt an expanded role definition mindset. I'd like to see us taken as given the fact that we are experts at identifying and articulating compliance obligations, that that is just a foundation. It's the first step to the impact we need to be having. Um, and what we need to do is to be preoccupied with requiring and inspiring compliance. Our requiring of compliance through others in the organization, obviously, can be improved enormously. And one of the great opportunities is for us to learn about how to inspire compliance, which is really what we need to be doing in the 2020s. So we want to draw on existing disciplines on how to require and inspire compliance. And, And I just see that this expanded role definition has a lot of implications for the leadership of the organization and for the work of the other strategic support services that compliance engages with. But there's this opportunity for the compliance leader to have a positive influence over the entire organization and add value to everyone else's roles by seeing this as a multidisciplinary job where we've got to be lifelong learners in these other fields. But if I were to summarize it, just Mm -hmm. see your job as making it easy for people to do the right thing And hard for them to do the wrong thing. And I don't think we're getting either of those things as right as we can be. So if you can just look at whatever you're involved in tomorrow and say, how can I make people find this easy to comply with? And how can we make it as an organization hard for them to do what we don't want to do? I think... We have to just see that all people are generally good people, the environment and how we frame that environment influences whether they're going to be their best or their self. And the good news is that while people are susceptible to negative influence, they are all highly suggestible to positive influence. So I really see this as the future of the profession is actively requiring and inspiring compliance.
1: What a wonderful note to end on. Well, thank you so much for your time, Penny. It's been a privilege having you speak today.
0: It was a great honour for me and thank you to you and Lisa, Mary, for the great work you're doing, certainly joining this profession. One is overwhelmed by the cooperation and
1: collaboration and care one experiences from others. It's been our experience too and it's been a pleasure. And to wrap up today's episode, I didn't want to leave anyone hanging if you're wondering what Google's remaining four out of five keys to success are. So after psychological safety, which I was very tardy in defining, here come the remaining four, which I will explain as well. Dependability. Can we count on each other to do high quality work on time? Number three is structure and clarity. Are goals, roles, and execution plans on our team clear? Number four, meaning of work. Are we working on something that is personally important for each of us? And in relation to points three and four, I have an exercise that you might find helpful in terms of defining your overarching purpose and goals and shared values as a team. Um, If you'd like to take a look, um, I did a, a paper for... Corporate Compliance Insights, which can be found on their website, about a team bonding exercise to develop your compliance department's mission statement. Feel free to take a look. And number five is impact of work. Do we fundamentally believe that the work we're doing matters? So there you have it, Google's five keys to success. Thanks so much for tuning in today and we look forward to hearing from you if you have any feedback. Uh, And as always, any questions, feel free to get in touch with either myself or Penny. You can find us on LinkedIn. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in
0: Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.